You are listening to Bringing Grace to the Nations podcast, where we talk about your theological questions. BGN podcast is produced every Saturday for your enjoyment. Get more information on our website, grace-nation.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at GraceNationMin and on Facebook. Now, here is your host, President of Grace Nation Ministries, Victor. I was at a conference this past week. And at the conference, it was kind of the final day. It was the last sermon to be preached. And the pastor, Louis Giglio, preached the gospel message. And he gave a time of response after And during that time, during that response, there was kind of this weight in the room. It wasn't a bad weight. It was the Holy Spirit in the room moving and changing lives. And at that time, no one could say a word. There was complete silence in the room because the Holy Spirit was moving and changing lives of over 12,000 college students. I turned around during that time and and I saw this girl and she was on her hands and knees on the dirty stadium floor, weeping, crying, mourning. And as she got up, she wiped some of the tears off of her eyes. We made the quickest glance. We had the quickest moment of eye contact. And in that moment, when I saw her eyes, I knew that for the first time in her life, she knew what it was like to be a sinner. She understood her sin. She knew that her sin separated her from God and condemned her to an eternity in hell. But Also, more importantly, she was understanding for the first time what it was like to know and believe that God had come down to this earth, lived a sinless life, die for her, and forgive her of her sins. She was experiencing all these things for the first time in her life. She understood what it was like to be changed by the spirit of the living God. And so today, before we even dive into the preaching and teaching of God's word, I want us to take a time of just prayer. And I want us to ask God to remind us of what it was like when we experienced him for the first time. Let's ask God to make his salvation fresh on our hearts, to remind us of what it's like to experience the spirit of the living God. And if you're in here tonight, maybe you don't know what that experience is and you haven't experienced that, I'm gonna ask you to take the next 35 minutes and just open your heart to whatever happens in this time. Because if you come with an open heart, God will move. And so we're going to enter into a time of just prayer. We're going to pray silently. We're going to ask God to to change our hearts. And I don't want you to just close your eyes and wait for me to close. I want you to deeply ask God to move in your heart, to carve you and to shape you like Jesus. So that we can enter into this time of preaching and teaching with the correct heart so that God will move. So we're going to take just a few moments and enter into prayer right now. Go ahead. Dear Heavenly Father, God, as we enter into this time, Lord, we we know your spirit is here, and Lord, we ask it and we pray that you will move in each and every person's life in this room. God, that every individual in here will experience the moving power of the Spirit. 
God, we ask that you will change lives in this time. Lord, I pray that every word that comes out of my mouth is not of me, but of you. And if in anything comes from me, Lord, that it would just fall to the dust. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So go ahead, give yourself a round of applause. You made it to 2018. Congratulations. I didn't think I was going to make it, but I did, and so did you also. It's awesome to see you here. This is the first Sunday morning of 2018, and that's awesome. I'm, I'm flattered and blessed that I'm able to bring the first sermon at Fishhawk uh, to, to kind of kick off the new year. And although it's the first sermon of the year, it's also my last weekend of the year here, and probably for a little bit while after that, because I'm moving to North Carolina. And uh, I have, uh, I studied advanced theology uh, here in Newport Ritchie, and now I'm moving on to pursue my seminary in North Carolina Wake Forest. So I'm excited to see what God does in that season of my life. But it's kind of this bittersweet, you know, thing going on with me because I love this church family. I've been a part of Fishhawk Fellowship for over eight years now. I grew up through the youth ministry, middle school and high school, and a little bit into the college ministry. And so it's just been really awesome uh, how Fishhawk has really followed Christ and appointing godly men over my life to help me and put me on the path that I'm on today. So we're so thankful for them. Yeah, go ahead. So yeah, as David said, I'm Victor, I'm 20 years young. Um, <laughs> I'm not that old, but yeah, I'm 20 years old and uh, I'm going to seminary and I'm really excited. And just a little bit more about me, uh, just to kind of give you uh, some information. When I was younger, I loved the WWE. Who else loves the WWE either right now or when you're here? I love the WWE, I'm not gonna lie, I'm not ashamed of it. Uh, my favorite wrestler of all time is Randy Orton. He is my favorite wrestler. I went to all the shows. I, when they came to town, I bought all the pay-per-views. I had all the t-shirts. I knew all the intro songs, right? And I knew the poses that they would do. And I was obsessed with the WWE. And funny story, me and my brother, my brother also who loved the WWE would wrestle in my room and we would set up the camcorder kind of like there in the, in the corner of the room and we would record ourselves beating each other up. I would jump off the bed, give him the elbow. He would try and hurt me, but he can't cause I'm awesome. Uh, and, and we would record ourselves and then we would watch ourselves beating each other up. And we would put music to it and we would do the whole intro thing and we would make our own WWE show. That's how much we loved the WWE. And, and I, I thought about why I love the WWE and Randy Orton so much. And Randy Orton, if you, if you haven't seen a picture of him, the man is huge. He has muscles on parts of his body that like muscles don't go. Like he has abs on his back. Like, I don't know how it works. <laughs> but the man is huge and I, I think about why I look up to him so much and I think it's because he's strong. I think we all kind of desire to, to look up to someone who's strong or desire this strength. I think it's kind of built into our human nature. You see, we see it all throughout our world. Nations bargain and war from a position of strength. Parents, you're going to love this. Kids, you're going to hate this. You feed your kids vegetables. Why? So that they grow up to be big and strong. Sports teams, if you play on a sports team or, or you know anything about sports, you know that they have to practice. Why? To, to be stronger than their opponent. The Bucks don't do that very well. <laughs> but, but, but the strength, I think, is a synonym for success. I think they go hand in hand. 
You see, the person with the strongest influence gets his way. The company that's most successful or has the strongest benefits gets the most employees, and the man with the strongest or most successful product gets rich. This idea of strength and success go together. And I think in our world today, like right now, us Christians feel like we need to operate from a position of strength. We feel like for some reason we need to outworld the world. And so, so we focus our, our minds on getting higher paying jobs and getting a nicer car and filling our schedules to be packed so we can somewhat, so we can fill this kind of desire, this hole that we have in our heart to be strong, to be successful. There's this man, his name is John Stott. He is a very prominent theologian of our time. He is often compared to Billy Graham. He had a, a conference that he was leading in the 1950s in Australia. And he was leading a conference similar to the one that I was at last week. It spanned over a few days. And when he, when he went, he was getting ready. He was preparing for his last sermon. And if you know anything about conferences or student life camps or uncommon weekends, you know that the last sermon is kind of the big crescendo. Like, it's the big finish. It's when the pastor preaches the gospel. It's when life change is happening. It's when the spirit is moving. It's when everyone is crying. And so he was preparing to give this sermon. And about 30 minutes before he, he was to get on stage and preach the gospel, he got a phone call. And on, on the other line, uh, the person just told him, hey, your father just passed away. 30 minutes before he was supposed to go preach the gospel, the life-giving, life-breathing gospel, and he's experiencing death in his family. I couldn't imagine what he was going through. The, the, he was probably shaking and sweating, and his stomach probably hurt. He was contemplating whether or not he should even preach the sermon. I mean, he should be getting on a plane and flying straight home to comfort his mom. And so he, he gathered a few of the youth leaders that were there at the conference. There's about 4,000 people. He just gathered a few of the people and he asked them to come and pray over him. And he, he asked them just to pray a few simple words. And, and he asked them to pray, in my weakness, God display your strength. That was his prayer. And so he came to the conclusion that he was going to preach this sermon. And he preached the sermon and he recalls his experience like this. I croaked the gospel like a raven. I couldn't exert my personality. I couldn't move. I couldn't use any inflections in my voice. I croaked the gospel in monotone. This is the pastor's all-time worst nightmare. When the pastor is preaching a gospel, when you're, when you're preaching the gospel, it's something that gives life. It's, it, it gives you enthusiasm. And he preached it in monotone. And surprisingly enough, something amazing happened that night. Out of the 4,000 students that were there, the most amount of people to come forward and receive Christ during a John Stott sermon came forward that night. Over 1,500 students gave their life to Christ. And so John Stott says this again about that night, and he said, the Holy Spirit takes our human words, spoken in such weakness and frailty, and he carries them home with power to the mind, the heart, and the conscience in a way that the people see and believe. God used his weakness 
and displayed his strength. And today we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture where we see that in, in the Bible. And so if you will open to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to be diving into verse 7 through 10, and that's where we're going to kind of be focusing in on today. And Paul's story is really interesting, and if you have uh, a lot of, uh, some more time outside of today, you can really dig into the story of Paul and where he's at. But in 2 Corinthians here, he's kind of having this conversation with God. And we'll start in verse 7. Here's what he says. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know about you, but when I read scripture and I read a passage like that, I oftentimes ask myself some questions to help me uh, discern what's being said. And a lot of the times I'll ask myself, what? What was the thorn? But in this case, I think that's the wrong question because scripture actually never tells us what the thorn is. And we can waste a lot of time discussing what the thorn is. We can discuss high lofty theology topics that really have no biblical basis and and we can waste a lot of time. So instead of asking what today, we're gonna ask why. Why did Paul, why was he so convinced that he needed this thorn removed? I mean, he pleaded three times. And and I firmly believe that Paul needed this thorn removed. He convinced himself that he needed this thorn removed because he thought that if it was gone, he would be able to perform a ministry more effectively. He He wasn't wrong in pleading for God for him to remove this thorn. He was convinced that if God took it away, he would be able to share the gospel with more people. He would be able to bring Christ into more nations. He'd be able to plant more churches. And we see God's response. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. There's a cool truth about God in this passage. And it says, and I want to focus on this for just a quick second. And we want to talk about what the thorn, uh, what it was, not, not the specifics of it, but how God used it. And we read that it was a messenger of Satan. Now, this proves to us that God can use the demons on the opposing side to cause him to win. Like, he can take the demons and have them do his will. He is sovereign over the demons. Like, that should, that should make us just fall to our faces in awe. Like, the God that is in our hearts, the God that is with us, has power even over our enemy. It's like, it's like a football team being able to make the other quarterback throw interceptions all day. Like, that's awesome. I remember a time when I was younger, a lot younger, so 20, yeah, that's kind of young, but I was a lot younger. I was about two years old. I don't remember it explicitly, but I've heard stories and puzzle pieces has kind of been put back together, and so I can tell the story decently. My mom had just gotten pregnant with her second child. And I, when I heard the news that I was going to be a big brother, I was so happy. Like, I was like, yes, I have someone to bully. I have someone to push. I'm so excited. Like, all the big brother stuff, right? And so mom's dad's in the room. If you know, you know the preparation that you have to go through to bring life into the world. You have to pay, pick the paint color for the room. So if you're, if you're the parent that 
doesn't want to know the gender of the child until it's born. You kind of paint the room that snot yellow color. But if you know the gender of the, of the baby, then you, kinda, then you either paint it blue or pink because that's what people do. And you, after you paint the room, you go and you get the crib, right? You don't want the baby to flop out of bed. So you, put a, you get a crib, and I remember picking out the crib with my mom. And after we had gotten the crib, I was like, I want the first thing my baby sister sees when she is brought into this world to be a gift from her new big brother. So I'm going to be an awesome big brother. So I went and I just picked up like this stuffed animal, probably a bear. And I was like, this is what I'm going to give to her when she's brought into this world. And so time passes, time goes on, and my mom goes into labor, and, and we start, we kind of go to the hospital, and the family's in the waiting room, we have family friends there, and there's happiness and joy, and we're all fellowship, we're like having fellowship, and I'm running around with my stuffed bear, and I'm screaming because I'm so happy. And this room uh, started, like, we started waiting, and we started waiting, and we started waiting, and the room kind of shifted a little bit because it was taking a little bit longer than expected. But we were still happy and we were still joyful. And then a nurse kind of walked into the room and me being two years old, I'm blind to basically everything. The nurse walks in the room and whispers something to someone in the room and I'm still running laps around the, around the room with the stuffed animal screaming. But, but the tone of the room changes and it goes from joy and there's kind of like this silence and from happiness to kind of like this depression and from strength in life to kind of this weakness until I overhear someone tell me that she was born dead. And so I instantaneously, when I hear that, I run to the delivery room, and it's like right when you walk in, you get hit by a train, a room that is designed to bring life into the world, a room that is designed to bring families together, a room that is designed for happiness and fellowship, instantaneously turned into this room of depression and weakness and death. I remember the nights where I would literally ask my parents, where's my baby sister at? We would plead with God, night after night after night, why? Bring her back, why'd you do this? That brings me to my first point this morning. And it's that God is over our weaknesses. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever pleaded with God for something? Something as simple as letting the Bucks win at least one game. Or maybe was it a little bit more serious? Maybe, have you ever pleaded with God and asked him, I really need that new job to financially support my new family? Or maybe you really need that loan to get that house so that you can expand your family. Or maybe it's something even a little bit more serious than that. Maybe you're pleading with God, asking him to take that cancer that you just got diagnosed with away. Maybe a loved one just got diagnosed with a cancer and you're pleading with God for him to take it away. Or maybe it's even a little bit more serious. Maybe you're pleading with God, asking him to bring that loved one back, like I was. But how can a loving and gracious God say no to something that's so good? I mean, we read in Genesis that life is very good. When God created Adam and Eve, he said that it was very good. How can God say no to something that's very good? And I think if we try and answer this question with our human logic, we stray from the Bible. And we do that so much. And then we, we answer this question with our human logic and we, we kind of convince ourselves that it's biblical. And then we start blaming God for everything and we just start spiraling down from there. So today we're gonna answer, try and answer that question straight from the Bible so we can derive a biblical answer. 
You see, my parents were destroyed. I was destroyed when this happened. Our family was destroyed when this happened. But we had to take comfort in the fact that God is sovereign over everything and his will is good. I think we ask ourselves, we ask God a lot of questions and I think we ask him why a lot. I've been through a lot of trials in my life where I've asked God why during that trial, we, my family was asking God why. And I'm sure everyone in this room at one point or another has asked God why. And we read in the Bible that many biblical characters ask God why. But in the Bible, when the characters are asking God why, they're asking it more in a way of like, God, please reveal to me what you're doing in my life because I don't understand it. But oftentimes when we ask why, we're saying more something along the lines of like, if I could play God for today, I would have made the right choice. I would have done something different. There's two huge differences between asking why. You see, Paul pleaded with God three times. We have this view of history, and it's very linear. We can look down the timeline of the past, and although tomorrow's not promised to us, we can kind of see the timeline of the future. And although that's how we view time, that's not necessarily how God views time. You see, God steps outside of our linear timeline, and he sees it more as a point. And so what happened to me 18 years ago and what happened to me today are to him a point, but to me it's 18 years. And there's a big difference for that. And it it doesn't mean that God is over our timeline, ruling down on us like a harsh dictator. He can also step down into our linear timeline and put put his arm around us. He can comfort us. He loves us. He weeps when we weep. He laughs when we laugh. He's literally sent Jesus into our timeline. So God steps down into our timeline. And although he'll put his arm around you and comfort you during your suffering and your weakness, that doesn't mean he'll make it go away because he knows the outcome that we don't. You see, now, 18 years later, I have a little bit better of a glimpse of why what happened happened. You see, I might not be standing here today if things played out differently. And now I have an amazing baby brother who I may not have had if things played out differently. And the way he's done ministry and his school and through his life has been amazing. The way he's influenced me has been amazing. And if things have played out differently, I might not even be a Christian. God does everything for a purpose. But yet we forget that so often. Paul pleaded three times and let's look at how God responded. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, not your power, my power is made perfect in weakness. This verse also caused me to ask a few questions and it's another why question. Why do we suffer? I think this is a huge question. Christian, this is like the big question of Christianity. People stay away from Christianity because they can't answer the question, why do we suffer? You see, why couldn't God just stick to using my strengths? Why couldn't he just use my spiritual gifts and display his strengths through my strengths? It makes sense. I don't have to suffer. Why do we suffer? That brings me to my second point this morning. And it's that God is in our weaknesses. He uses our weaknesses not only to humble us, but also to make Jesus more known among the nations, to glorify his name. John Piper, 
a very prominent pastor of today's age, says this. He said, God thinks humility is more important than comfort. Humility is more important than freedom from pain. He will give us this mountaintop experience in paradise and then bring us through anguish of soul lest we think we have risen above the need for total reliance on his grace. That quote, John Piper said, when he was just diagnosed with cancer. You see, John Piper's talking about we need to have complete and total reliance on his grace. That's what the text tells us. A perfect example of God humbling someone, and there are tons of perfect examples in scripture, but the one that I'm most drawn to is in the book of Job. And although I'm not gonna have you turn there, I don't have enough time to go through the entire narrative of Job, I will catch you up to where I'm going to start. And so Job is this righteous guy. And Satan and God are having this conversation and Satan's like, God, Job only loves you. He only worships you because you've given him all this stuff. You've given him cattle and land and livestock and riches and social status and a wife and kids and servants. You've made him so rich, so popular. There's no reason for him not to worship you. And so God's like, okay, let's make a bet. And so they make this kind of bet where God's like, he's not, you can do whatever. And remember, God gives Satan permission to do this. He's like, you can take anything away from Job you want. You can do whatever you want to him. You just can't kill him. God had to give Satan permission to do that. Again, going back to the God is sovereign over even our enemy. And so Satan takes this bet and Satan's like, he will curse you to your face. And God's like, no, he won't. So Satan begins his work and he takes away his cattle and his livestock. And Job's like, okay, this kind of stinks. Like, God, what are you doing here? And then Satan continues And he takes away his riches and his social status. And then Satan continues a little bit more and starts killing people, starts killing his servants. And then he takes it a little bit further and kills his children. And then he takes it even further and curses Job with a disease that makes it painful all the time. He is in constant anguish and pain physically, and it doesn't stop. There's a point where he's laying on the floor, begging God to strike him down. That's how much pain he was going through. Job never cursed God to his face. But that doesn't mean he passed with an A+. You see, Job begun near the the latter chapters of the book. He begins to kind of justify what he's going through because of his righteous deeds. And so he's telling God, like, I shouldn't be going through this because I'm a righteous person. Quote, unquote, righteous. And God's response is amazing. It's pushing Job's pride down. And we're going to read out of Job 38. And you don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. We're just going to read a couple verses. And this is the very beginning. So God's responding to Job's pride. And now he's going to question Job. And this is what God says. Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man and I will question you. Make it known to me, where were you when I laid the foundations of this world? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the measurements? Surely you know. This isn't just four or five verses in the book of Job. This spans over two very long chapters. 
of constant questioning. And with every question, he's knocking Job down just a little bit. He's knocking his pride down with every question. He's like, do you make the lightning strike where it does? Can you kill the beast? He's questioning Job, and with every question, Job's pride is being pushed and pushed and pushed. God uses our weaknesses to humble us. But he also uses our weaknesses to glorify Jesus. And John Piper says this, if you can tell, I love John Piper. John Piper says this, God's purpose in our weakness is to glorify the grace and power in his son. God's design is to make you a showcase for Jesus's power but not necessarily the way the market demands. Not by getting rid of all your weaknesses, but by giving you the strength to endure and even rejoice in them. Let God be God. If he wills to show the perfection of his son's power in our weaknesses, instead of by our escape, we must trust him he knows best. Again, similar time of when he was struggling with cancer. No man was weaker than Jesus. You see, Jesus had been physically weak, he had been emotionally weak, and he had also been spiritually weak. Physically weak because he went through the Roman crucifixion. And if you know anything about that, it is the most painful way for a man to be executed. He went through constant torture and then death on a cross. He was physically beaten and weak. He was so weak to the fact he could not carry his cross. He had to have someone else do it. His back was scorched and blood was pouring out. He was physically weak, exhausted. He was emotionally weak because he was going through this ridicule. His own people had turned on him. People were spitting at him. They were making fun of him. They nailed a sign above his head. They put a crown on him. They were mocking him. He was emotionally weak. And most of all, he was spiritually weak because on the cross, God had literally turned his back on his son. He was like, I can have nothing to do with you because you're bearing our sins right now. And God cannot be in the presence of sin. Philippians 2 says this in verse 7 and 8. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself. He used the weaknesses to humble himself and glorify himself. So what did Paul say? God says that my grace is sufficient for you. How did Paul respond? Paul responds, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. It was instantaneous. There was not, he, Paul didn't say, give me like a week to pray on it. Let me, go to, let me talk to some people about it and see if this is really what you want me to do. We do that a lot and we waste a lot of time. I'll use the example from Matthew 28, the Great Commission. God tells us to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is not something that we need to spend a month or two praying about if God is calling us to do this. We just need to do it. We, we do this thing, and I heard the story. is this guy, and he, he's in his house, and he prays for his next-door neighbor who's not a Christian. And he's praying for his neighbor every night, and that's all he does. He prays for his neighbor. Every night he's on his knees begging God that his neighbor would be saved. And he spent 
days and months and years doing this. And he's like, God, why isn't he saved now? I've been praying him for such a long time. And God responded, well, maybe it's because you haven't talked to him yet. Maybe it's because you haven't shared Jesus with him yet. We have to find that balance. So Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, Paul was content with his weaknesses. He was no longer pleading that God remove them, but now he's content. That word consent is a beautiful word. I heard this story, and it's about a pilot. And the pilot would fly over uh, this mountain range, and in the, in the middle of the mountain range, there's this river. And kind of off to the side of the river, there's this like log, or fallen over tree or like a log. And every time he would fly over this, the, he routinely flied over this area, he would look down at this spot. And his co-pilot finally asked him after months and months and months, he was like, why do you look down at that spot? You do it every time we fly over this range. The pilot said, I looked down at this spot because when I was a kid, I would go fishing there with my dad. And every time I would go fishing, I would look in the sky and a plane would fly over and I'd tell my dad, I wish I was flying. Like, I want to be a pilot. I wish I was in the air. And now every time I fly over it, I look down at the same spot and wish I was fishing with my dad. It's impossible to find our contentment in worldly things. When we put our identity in those things, when we put our identity in relationships or or financial status or social status or in the things that we have, they always come up short. God is the only thing that can fill that spot. It's like fitting a square in a circle-sized hole when we try to fill it with things of this world. It just won't fit. It comes up empty every time. It's impossible to find our contentment in worldly things. And that brings me to my last point this morning. And it's that God will use our weaknesses. You see, we, we talk about surrendering to Christ all the time. But truth is, we're not completely surrendered to Christ until we've given him our weaknesses and our strengths. It's easy for us to give him, give him our strengths. It really is. But it's difficult to surrender what we find insecure about ourselves, what we're ashamed of. We can't, we can't surrender those things as easily because we want to fix them before we give them to God. The truth of the matter is, the only way they're going to get fixed is if you give them to God. God will use our weaknesses. And although it proves a difficult journey, although it doesn't mean life will be comfortable, although it doesn't mean he'll make your weaknesses go away, in fact, you might discover more weaknesses about yourself, you're going to see God's power displayed because of them. You'll find yourself with this joy that's unexplainable. God is using our weaknesses to accomplish his will and to ultimately glorify himself, to make his name known. God used Paul with the thorn. God used Moses with his speech. God used Joseph in prison. God used David. God used, and God will use you. We see it all throughout the Bible. And so it's silly of us to to see God using these people in the Bible and then to to kind of convince ourselves that he's not going to use us. 
It's just not true. It's, it's, not, it's not biblically fluent. He will use you, but we have to make sure that we are completely surrendered to him. I want to go ahead and invite the band up as we, as we kind of begin our closing today. This week, I want to challenge you to, to, to look at your weaknesses, but not to just stop there. I think we, we, we're ashamed of them or we focus on our limitations a little bit too much. And so we're so narrow-minded, we look at our limitations, but we don't open the lens and we don't recognize that there's a God over them. So this week, I challenge you to, to recognize the God over them and to thank God for them. We kind of do this weird thing mentally. Where, where we convince ourselves that we've sinned too much or we've gone too far outside of what God can save. And we read in Romans that that's just wrong. For we all have fallen short. We've all have sinned. The only difference between people in this room today, it's not that some have sinned more or less. We're all sinners. The only difference between the people in this room today is that some of you have experienced the life-changing power of Jesus. And some of you are still waiting for that to happen. We're going to have pastors down up front. We're going to open into a time of invitation. If you haven't experienced that life-changing power that the girl experienced at the conference just a few days ago, you can today, this morning. So as we enter into this time of worship, let's focus our mind on that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for everything that you're doing, the way that you're moving here today. God, we thank you for the lives that are being molded here today. God, we thank you for for the way that you're moving in this place today, the way that you're conforming people to be more like you. So God, we thank you for that. God, we pray that you will draw people to your son in this place today. God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And that's the show. Thanks for listening. The BGN Podcast comes out every week. Questions? Email us at gracenationministries at yahoo.com or tweet us at gracenationmin. Until next time, take care and God bless.